High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org students. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. You must Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we bring you the third installment in our series about famous people during times of war or... Star Wars. Today's episode is sort of the bridge in an unofficial trilogy within this series. Last week, we talked about Hedy Lamarr, who, amongst many, many other things, sort of collected ex-husbands. One of her ex-husbands, in the middle of his divorce from Hedy, met and proposed to the subject of today's episode— a woman who had already dated and broken up with the ex-husband of the subject of next week's episode. The central figure in this game of musical mating is Jean Tierney, the brunette beauty who starred in romantic fantasies like Heaven Can Wait and The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, and also helped to invent the concept of the femme fatale in two classic films, Laura and Leave Her to Heaven. Jean Tierney was so naturally stunning that screen makeup actually muted her beauty, and eventually when she became famous enough, she fought not to wear any. She had relationships with some of the greatest playboys of her time, including John F. Kennedy, Prince Ali Khan, and Howard Hughes. But Jean Tierney's life was at least as tragic as it was glamorous. Her first daughter was born severely disabled, and Jean and her first husband, the fashion designer Oleg Cassini, would eventually be able to trace their daughter's issues 
back to the carelessness of a fan whom Jean met while doing her part for the war effort. Always prone to anxiety, in her 30s as the trauma of dealing with a very sick child led to the collapse of her marriage, Jean began exhibiting the symptoms of what we now call manic depression. Back then, she was sent to sanitariums, given electric shock treatments, and driven to consider suicide. Join us, won't you, as we learn about the manic life of Jean Tierney. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious, but with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. netsuite.com slash remember. Jean Tierney was born in 1920 into an acculturated East Coast family whose fortunes rose and fell with the stock market. At age 15, Jean was sent to boarding school in Switzerland for two years. She came home to find that the wealth her father had accumulated before the crash was now gone. At age 17, on a guided tour of the Warner Brothers lot while on a family vacation to Los Angeles, Jean was spotted by the director Anatole Litvak, who suggested she do a screen test. She did, reading a monologue written by Dorothy Parker, and in turn was offered a standard entry-level contract. But Howard Tierney, Jean's father, was anti-Hollywood, in the typically classist fashion of upper classes at the time. Jean was a nice girl from a good family who was expected to make her debut to society that year. Her father didn't want her to act at all, but he made a deal with his daughter. If she came home to Connecticut and made her debut, and still harbored dreams of being a star, then he'd help her find work on Broadway. Jean followed orders and hopped on the debutante circuit, and then one night at a party, she admitted to her father, I'm so bored, I think I will die. And her father made good on his promise. Within months, the Broadway producer George Abbott gave Jean her first acting job in a short-lived play called Mrs. O'Brien Entertains. The show attracted the notice of several studios, and Columbia made the best offer. With her mother as chaperone, Jean Tierney came to Hollywood. 
She was groomed for a full summer, given classes in dance, posture, and elocution. The first film she was cast in, she was fired from, as soon as Columbia studio chief Harry Cohn saw the first dailies. Cohn decided that Tierney was a Deanna Durbin type, except there was a problem because Jean couldn't sing. Tierney would have preferred to have been a Rita Hayworth type. The red-headed actress was then that studio's hottest property. Losing weight had been one of the many sacrifices Rita had made for stardom, and one day a cameraman at Columbia told Jean that it wouldn't hurt if she tried to shed some of her own baby fat. The camera liked to see contours. Jean mailed away for a diet program that promised she'd lose a pound a day in a healthy way. She stayed on that diet for 20 years, and later said, I was hungry for most of those 20 years. Before Jean was cast in a significant part, she attracted the attention of the town's most significant playboy, Howard Hughes. In 1938, Howard Hughes was planning his around-the-world flight and ostensibly engaged to Catherine Hepburn when he first started courting Jean Tierney. Talking dreamily about his plans for the flight, Hughes suddenly remembered he was supposed to be paying attention to the gorgeous starlet across the table. He said, Jean, I wish I could put you in a cookie jar and take you with me. As a young girl with very little experience with men, who came from debutante culture and was expected to keep her virtue intact until marriage, Tierney at 18 was a perfect mark for Hughes's preferred style of woo. All grand gestures and little to no intimacy. Before their first date, he had her apartment filled with gardenias. He once flew Jean and her mother to Mexico for lunch. Jean's mother thought Howard was a catch and encouraged her to marry him. But even at 18, Jean knew Howard was elusive. She sensed already, as she put it later, what a wisp of cotton he would be in my life. And one night, after he lured her to his house after dinner on a false pretense, she stopped fantasizing that Howard Hughes was serious about her. Soon, Tierney's contract at Columbia expired, and rather than re-up and continue to sit around doing nothing, she went back to New York and immediately became a sensation on the stage. When an MGM scout appeared at her dressing room with a contract offer, Jean sent him away. Come to me with a contract saying I'll be put on a picture right away, and I'll consider it. MGM couldn't believe the nerve of this kid. But eventually, Daryl Zanuck at Fox bought into it, signing Tierney to a contract at about five times the going rate for an actress who had yet to appear in a movie, with a stipulation that if she didn't have a job within three days of arrival in Los Angeles, then the contract was null and void. And so Tierney returned to L.A. and went straight to work, In fact, she made three films in her first year back, the most notable of them being Tobacco Road, directed by John Ford. And then, in late 1940, 20-year-old Jean Tierney went to a dinner party and met Oleg Cassini, a costume designer on staff at Paramount. Oleg's grandfather had been some kind of count, as he was quick to tell anyone who'd listen, although no one in Hollywood put much stock in his supposed royal credentials. Oleg was 28, and had already been married and divorced. He was, Jean later said, the most dangerous-looking man I had ever seen. Jean and Oleg were dating when he was fired from Paramount, apparently for spending too much time in nightclubs, often with Jean at his side. His career prospects looked dim. Jean tried and failed to get her own studio, Fox, to hire her boyfriend on as a costume designer. 
He started talking about moving to Washington, D.C., where his mother had a fashion business. This sounded like a good idea to Tierney's mom and dad, who were staunchly against their romance. When the couple started talking about marriage, Jean's father wrote his daughter a letter warning her that if she were to marry that man, then her family would have her declared mentally incompetent. Jean didn't care what her family thought. She and Oleg decided to elope to Vegas, but in one of those classic portends of things to come, their private plane was grounded by a freak rainstorm. After another fight with her mother, who was sure Oleg was a gold-digging phony, Jean wasn't sure what she wanted, and Oleg became distant. She tried to date other people, but she didn't want to be with other people. And on June 1st, 1941, Jean Tierney and Oleg Cassini married in Vegas. Jean's mother called Howard Hughes and asked him to stop the wedding, but he was in Canada and couldn't get to Jean in time. When Jean called her mother after the ceremony to tell her that she had a new son-in-law, Mrs. Tierney was livid. She said, you can keep him, and hung up on her daughter. The next day, Jean's mother issued a statement to the press, calling her daughter, quote, a misguided child who has been carried away by this suave man of the world. Tierney's studio Fox hadn't supported the marriage either, and the new Mr. and Mrs. Cassini were essentially excommunicated from the Hollywood social world for six months as a result. Because she had started acting as a minor, up until her marriage to Cassini, Tierney had been paid through a corporation set up by her father. As part of the family's efforts to punish Jean for marrying, her father sued her for $50,000 in order to try to ensure ownership over Jean's career. Jean won the suit, but in the process, discovered that she had no assets, no money in savings. Everything had been taken by her father to cover his own business debts. Talk about a gold-digging phony. The summer of her marriage, Jean Tierney appeared on the cover of Life magazine in a skimpy sarong. She was working constantly, shooting a movie called Sundown in New Mexico, and Oleg was back in Los Angeles, not working at all. When Jean returned home from her location shoot, her husband's knuckles were red and bruised from having been punched repeatedly into walls. It was just so frustrating, Oleg told his wife, not to have you here with me on our honeymoon. In fact, the couple had no honeymoon at all. When Tierney's mother had been desperate for help in her crusade to stop Jean from marrying Cassini, Jean's agent, Leland Hayward, had suggested that Jean and Oleg live together for six months, with cohabitation being a surefire cure for a young girl inflicted with infatuation. Jean's mother couldn't conceive of such an impropriety at the time, but sure enough, her daughter and Count Cassini were not able to keep a happy home for long. Jean's work schedule allowed her little time for wifely duties, and it was a secret to no one that Oleg was not functioning as a provider. In December 1941, Tierney was shooting on location on Catalina Island when word spread that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. Here's how she describes that day in her autobiography. We wrapped up at once and were soon sailing towards San Pedro. The radio reports of the Japanese attack were shrill and disconnected and led to wild speculation aboard our boat. Some of the cast thought that they might hit the California coast next. For all anyone knew, the waters we were now churning through might have been mined. I would not want to overstate or embroider what we felt that day, but I remember the sun was setting, and as it did... 
The whole western sky turned to shades of red, an ominous sign of the blood that was to be shed. Oleg joined the Coast Guard and was soon commissioned into the cavalry. With her husband away, Jean kept working. As a studio contract star, Jean had an obligation to make appearances promoting war bonds. But unlike Carol Lombard and Hedy Lamarr, Jean didn't take to such appearances with gusto. Being herself in public was always difficult for her, and it meant hiding the fact that she was terrified of crowds. Jean had suffered from anxiety before, but in those days, in most cases, the physical effects of nervous disorders were misunderstood, dismissed, and ignored. Now, at least, Jean had something with a name, stage fright, but it wasn't easily cured. While shooting Heaven Can Wait with director Ernst Lubitsch in 1943, Tierney discovered that she was pregnant. She kept it a secret in fear that the studio would take her off the movie and put her on unpaid leave, which was customary for expectant actresses at that time. When the movie was finished, Jean planned to join Oleg, who was stationed in Kansas. But before she left L.A., she was guilted into making an appearance at the Hollywood Canteen, where she signed autographs for and shook the hands of hundreds of people. A few days later, Jean woke up with her face covered in red spots. Her doctor diagnosed her with German measles, or rubella, and told her it wasn't anything to worry about. She just needed to postpone her trip to Kansas for a few days until the spots cleared up. Jean was annoyed by the delay, but she did as she was told. This episode is brought to you by MUBI, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on MUBI is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover, Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from Inland, Oregon, who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride. In the Army boarding house at Fort Riley, word soon spread that there was a movie star amongst the wives of the enlisted. What the onlookers and fans didn't know was that pregnant Jean Tierney was broke. She and Oleg had just bought and furnished a house in Los Angeles when war broke out. Now she was on unpaid suspension until she could get back into on-screen shape post-baby, and her husband was just making a paltry enlisted man's salary. When the couple decided Jean should travel to Washington, D.C., where both soon-to-be grandmothers were living to give birth, Jean had to auction off the secondhand furniture she had collected in Kansas just to pay for a plane ticket. On October 15th, 1943, Daria Cassini was born. She was premature and weighed only two and a half pounds. In the first days of her life, she required 11 blood transfusions. A year later, Daria was alive, 
but not thriving. She couldn't see out of one eye, and she didn't respond properly to stimulus. And then Jean read a newspaper article about the connection between an Australian-German measles epidemic and an increase in babies born with birth defects. The article noted that women who passed the virus on to their fetuses in the first month of pregnancy had the highest risk of babies born with severe development disorders, including brain damage. Jean Tierney had contracted German measles in her first month of pregnancy. The article said that babies affected by the virus might lose their hearing after suffering their first cold. Daria hadn't been able to hear well since her first cold. Jean took her baby to the doctor. The doctor didn't tell her what she wanted to hear. But Jean couldn't accept that her baby girl was, to use the language of the day, mentally retarded. She insisted that Daria just had problems with her ears. Howard Hughes had problems with his ears, too. He had lost a significant amount of his hearing by this point due to various aviation accidents. When Hughes heard that Jean's daughter had hearing problems, because Hughes heard about everything that happened to beautiful women in Hollywood, even if he couldn't hear, he sent his own hearing specialist to give Daria a look-see and quietly footed the $15,000 bill for a battery of tests. But Hughes' hearing specialist said there was nothing they could do because the real problem wasn't Daria's ears, it was her brain. They suggested Jean send her daughter to an institution. Countless medical experts told Tierney and Cassini the same thing. Daria's mental capacity would never develop past a two-year-old's, and she may never learn to speak. She would need constant care every day for the rest of her life. By the time Daria was four, her parents had exhausted their options and had also given up on one another. They separated, and Jean moved to the East Coast to live with her own mother. Daria was enrolled in a special facility in Pennsylvania. She would be institutionalized for the rest of her life. Jean Tierney would suffer tremendously from the guilt she felt over Daria's fate, and she believed that the trauma associated with her first child led to the mental breakdowns that Jean herself would suffer in the decades to come. She blamed herself, even after she acquired evidence, clear as day, that Daria's disabilities weren't her fault, but were in fact the result of another woman's selfishness. After Daria had been diagnosed as mentally disabled and Jean was debating whether or not to institutionalize her, Jean went to a Saturday afternoon tennis party at an acquaintance's house. That afternoon, a young woman approached the movie star. Do you remember me? asked the young woman. Jean apologized. She did not. The young woman told Jean that she had been a Marine during the war, and she had met Jean at the Hollywood canteen. Here's where Jean's autobiography picks up the story. The young woman said, Did you happen to catch the German measles after that night? I looked at her, too stunned to speak. You know, she went on, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but almost the whole camp was down with German measles. I broke quarantine to come to the canteen to meet the stars. Everyone told me I shouldn't, but I just had to go. She beamed, then added, and you were my favorite. 
I stood there for a very long minute. There was no point in telling her of the tragedy that had occurred. I turned and walked away very quickly. After that, I didn't care if I was ever again anyone's favorite actress. What's maybe most remarkable about Jean Tierney's career is that during this period of horrific personal trauma, she managed to make most of her best movies. Heaven Can Wait, not to be confused with the 1978 Warren Beatty Buck Henry movie, which is a remake of a different film, would be the last picture on which the great Ernst Lubitsch was credited as sole director. In Otto Preminger's Laura, Jean Tierney did as much to help invent the female tropes of film noir as Barbara Stanwyck did in Double Indemnity that same year. Greatest of all was Leave Her to Heaven, a sunshine noir and glorious technicolor in which Tierney's dream wife turns evil. It's sort of the original Gone Girl. Tierney's performance is a seemingly solicitous partner who goes mad trying to regain what she perceives as paradise lost is a model of controlled insanity. Released in 1944, Leave Her to Heaven was a massive hit, eventually becoming the most profitable film Fox released that decade. Jean earned her only Academy Award nomination for the movie. She lost to Joan Crawford and Mildred Pierce, which is only just barely justifiable. Tierney is that good. These are the key films on which Jean Tierney's legacy was built, and all were made and released during World War II during those excruciating early years of motherhood. Then, in 1946, there was Dragonwick, in which Tierney starred opposite Walter Houston. One day, while shooting, Jean noticed a visitor to the set, standing just past the camera in her line of sight. He was tall, thin, wearing a navy uniform, he had stunning blue eyes, and he smiled at her. Jean didn't break the shot to smile back, but after they were finished, she was happy to be introduced to the visitor, whose name was John F. Kennedy. The young war hero and future president was a second-generation Hollywood playboy. He had been preceded by his father, Joe Kennedy, who had been a studio mogul in the late 1920s and had had a number of dalliances, most legendarily with silent star Gloria Swanson. Jean would later claim that the Jack Kennedy she knew wasn't a womanizer. But the public imagination begs to differ. James Elroy's novel Perfidia, set in Hollywood in the opening days of World War II, embroiders the rumor that Swanson secretly gave birth to Joe Kennedy's child and imagines a young JFK making the tour of Hollywood's would-be starlet-slash-call-girls with a corrupt cop as his escort and driver. Just as she had been unwilling to heed her family's warnings about Cassini, any red flags that Jean noticed during the early days of her courtship by Jack Kennedy didn't faze her. She found in him a much-needed confidant, who understood what she was going through with Daria. Jack's own sister, Rosemary, was similarly afflicted. When Jack ran for Congress, Jean was his frequent dinner date. He told Jean he was confident that he'd be president one day, and she believed him. After a few months of dating Jack, Jean decided it was time to pester old Oleg about finally getting a divorce. The separated pair remained on good terms. Her husband was designing the costumes for her new film, The Razor's Edge, and Oleg had met Jack and liked him. 
But he wanted to make sure Jane knew what she was doing. Jack can't marry you, Oleg warned. No Catholic is going to marry a divorced woman. His family won't stand for it. Jean and Jack continued to see one another into 1947. She met his family, and that seemed to go fine. And then one day, over lunch in New York, all of a sudden, Jack said, I, uh, Jean, you know I can't marry you. Just as she had been silent upon receiving the news of how she got German measles, this time Jean didn't say anything right away. But at the end of lunch, when Jack had to run to catch a plane back to Washington, Jean said, Bye-bye, Jack. He told her that that sounded kind of final. She said, It is. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is, Nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, Dot com slash YMRT. In the aftermath of Jean's decision to institutionalize Daria, which basically coincided with the end of the Kennedy affair, Jean became, as she put it in her autobiography, baby hungry. After filming The Ghost and Mrs. Muir, she traveled back to New York, where Oleg had established himself as a couture designer. Jean thought that maybe, now that Oleg had his own professional identity, all of their old problems, including his jealousy, his drinking, his fistfights, his barely obscured dalliances with other women, maybe all of it would go away. They got back together, and while commuting between the studio in L.A. and Cassini's Atelier in New York, Jean discovered she was pregnant. She gave birth to a second daughter, Christina, in 1949. Their second child was healthy, but Christina's birth didn't save what was still a toxic relationship. One of the major bones of contention between Jean and Oleg was Howard Hughes. The Hughes of the late 1940s and early 1950s was not the same man Jean had dated when she first came to Hollywood. 
1946, Hughes had his second near-fatal plane crash in three years, when he tried to make an emergency landing on a golf course and instead plowed his plane through a Beverly Hills residential neighborhood, wiping out three houses and suffering many broken bones and burns. He started wearing a mustache after that to disguise his upper lip, which was mangled in the crash. Before, said Jean, there had been a soft, boyish, clear-eyed quality about him. Now the eyes had turned beady, the face had tightened. Rather than adding character, the scars only aged him. But after Tierney and Oleg separated, she and Howard began seeing one another again. His efforts to help Daria had melted Jean's heart to some extent, but she still kept Hughes at a distance. One night, he came over to her house with a briefcase full of jewels and told her to pick out anything she liked. She picked out a pair of earrings, wore them to a party the next night, and the night after that, returned them to Hughes, without, as she put it, returning the favor. Tierney implies in her book that their relationship was never consummated. The last time she was with him, she says, he invited her to fly with him to a cabin on Big Bear Lake. And she was like, what would we do when we got there? And he locked eyes with her and said nothing. Jean Tierney got the message, and she wasn't going to take the bait. No, Howard, she said. I'm not going to Big Bear. Apparently unaware that Jean's relationship with Hughes was essentially chaste, at one point Oleg threatened to, quote, beat the shit out of the billionaire for treading on what he thought of as his turf. One night, Oleg approached Howard at a nightclub with an offer. The designer told the aviator that if he wanted to marry Jean, Oleg would not get in his way, on the condition that Hughes put his intentions in writing. In that event, Oleg said, I will contain my desire to break your jaw. I will also be happy for her if that's what she wants. Hughes insisted that he may or may not intend to marry Jean, but either way, he didn't need to put it in writing. I'm from Texas, Howard said. My word is good enough. I know you, Oleg said in response. You're a Texas bullshitter. Tierney stopped seeing Hughes after that. She and Cassini broke up for good in 1952. Cassini would go on to burnish a reputation as an international playboy, proposing to Grace Kelly and becoming the fashion Svengali of First Lady Jackie Kennedy, an ironic turn of events given Tierney's long-past romance with Jackie's husband. But Cassini and even Hughes couldn't compete with Pakistani prince Ali Khan, the greatest of the international playboys of the mid-20th century, whom Jean first met while in Argentina on a three-month location shoot. During this time, Jean started experiencing the up-and-down mood swings, which he'd later understand were indicative of manic depression. But in 1952, she knew only that she was... different. When my mood was high, she'd write later, I felt smarter. I had secrets. I saw things no one else could see. I could see evil in a toothbrush. I could see God in a light bulb. But when swinging down, she would become despondent, rude, paranoid. When a hotel band played the theme to Laura to honor her, Jean became convinced they were mocking her. And when Ali Khan started wooing her, sending flowers to wherever she was in the world, Jean was instantly cynical. 
she reports in her book that she thought, that's all I need, some oriental super stud. Jean told her mother that she thought she needed to see a psychiatrist. Her mother said, all you need is an attractive bow and some pretty new French dresses. So Jean went on a shopping spree and allowed herself to become the consort of Ali Khan. They traveled throughout Europe together, hosting and attending parties, settling into a chateau in the south of France. Jean didn't work for a year or more, and when a film offer came via telegram, she declined it, responding, I'm happy as I am. Finally, in the spring of 1954, Jean agreed to come to London to make a film called Personal Affair. But her mental issues began to resurface. For the first time in her career, she had trouble remembering her lines. Jean was convinced that if she didn't slow down long enough to think, then she could outrun her demons. As long as I was playing someone else, Jean later wrote, I was fine. When I had to be myself, the problems began. So she made sure to keep the act going. She returned to Hollywood and Allie followed, and every day she worked and every night, she and Allie went to clubs, and on the weekends they jetted off to Mexico. Jean's friends tried to get her to face the fact that Allie, like every other man she had been seriously involved with, wasn't ideal marriage material. Not only was he attached to his jet-set lifestyle, but he had already been married to one movie star, Rita Hayworth, and his father had forbidden him from marrying another. Sure enough, eventually he went back to Europe, leaving Jean behind, without a distraction from her own deterioration. She moved in with her mother in an apartment in New York, refusing to work or to answer calls from the press. She would sleep for days at a time. She couldn't stay awake. When her dinner was served at a restaurant, she'd walk out, convinced her steak was poisoned. She finally saw a psychiatrist who recommended another psychiatrist who recommended a stay at a hospital where they treated Jean with electroshock therapy. And for a little while, Jean felt great. She couldn't remember why she had been so depressed all those months. Then, a week after her final shock treatment, the darkness came back. Her brother and sister convinced her to check herself into a sanitarium. The second she was locked into her room, Jean knew it was a mistake. The place felt like a prison, a human zoo. And when she was unresponsive to psychotherapy, Jean was given more electroshocks. After three weeks, Jean managed to escape but before she could make it to a telephone to call for help, a nurse tracked her down and took her back to the hospital. In 1957, Jean was finally released from the hospital into her mother's custody. But nothing had changed. She still felt like she couldn't stay awake. One day, her mother woke her and asked if she would go to the grocery store. Jean said she couldn't, and her mother sighed. "'What are you, Jean?' her mother asked. "'Are you sick?' Or are you just lazy? Convinced she was useless, Jean Tierney made her way to the window overlooking 57th Street, 14 floors up. She opened the window and swung her legs out onto the ledge. She stood up and looked down. She thought about what her body would look like if she jumped. She decided... She didn't want to be scraped off the pavement like scrambled eggs. She decided that if she was going to die, she wanted her body intact in a nice coffin. 
After about 20 minutes of contemplation, Jean crawled back inside. But someone had already called the police. And the next day, Jean was sent to another institution in Kansas. She stayed there for eight months, and on her release, her mother took Jean on vacation in Aspen. And there, Jean met Howard Lee, a Texas oil man who was in the process of divorcing Hedy Lamar. Jean and Howard started dating, and Jean planned her Hollywood comeback. She still owed a picture to Fox, who in turn owed her $100,000, which she needed badly. But in mid-December 1958, she felt herself falling apart again. It was like watching herself drown. She checked herself back into the Kansas hospital and agreed to stay for a year. Much to everyone's surprise, Howard Lee didn't go anywhere. He asked Jean to marry him, and when she said yes, he traveled from Houston regularly to visit her throughout the year. She left the hospital in 1959, married Lee in 1960, and finally made her Hollywood comeback in 1962 in Otto Preminger's film Advise and Consent. Her last film job came in 1964, when she was 44. Jean Tierney still suffered occasional hallucinations and delusions. At one point, for weeks, she ate nothing but bread, butter, and chocolate. And after she gained 20 pounds, Howard finally asked her what was going through her head and she realized that she had been having recurring dreams in which she was pregnant, and every night she would give birth, and every night, communists would steal her baby. But Howard stood by her, and she survived. In 1979, Tierney wrote with Mickey Hershkovitz a memoir called Self-Portrait, in which she bravely revealed the details of her relationships and her institutionalizations, and wrote this about her experience of World War II. I have long since stopped blaming the Lady Marine, myself, God, or Hitler, for what happened to us. But Daria was, of course, a war baby, born in 1943. I suppose it has always been true that, in wartime, the most innocent suffer too. Daria was my war effort. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. You Must Remember This is written, edited, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. If you like our show, please subscribe on iTunes, where you can also rate and review us, and follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We also have a new website at YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com, where you can find all of our episodes and show notes, news about the show, And we have a new forum set up where you can start conversations about the episodes, ask questions, get to know your fellow listeners, and maybe most excitingly, suggest topics for future episodes. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night. (laughs) 